Well, hello, and welcome to your friendly neighborhood comic book historian podcast. I'm Alex Grant, and I'm here with my co-host, Drowsy Bill Field, who's a little under the weather today because he's had a rough week, but he wanted to power on, and we're applauding his character through all this because he just loves the year 1984 so much. Today, we are setting our CBH sights on the year 1984. 1984 is an interesting year when Marvel and DC shift toward a corporate multimedia cross-platform approach with Secret Wars and Superpowers. We got the creator rights being highlighted with Zot by Scott McCloud and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, as well as the larger independent 80s comic books market as a trend toward the recognition of creative rights really cements, which in a way relates to some of the 1960s Marvel co-creators getting their original art back. As well as four notable deaths in the comic book industry, including Pacific Comics, Saul Brodsky, Don Newton, and Phil Suling. We have a special guest today, comic book historian, scholar, and author, Peter Coogan, who is a PhD in American Studies and the superhero genre. Pete, give us some background on your credentials. So I got my PhD in American Studies from Michigan State University, uh, focusing on the superhero genre. But slightly before that, while I was at Michigan State, I volunteered at the special collections in the library where they have the largest publicly owned comics collection, American comics collection in the world. And I worked on the newsletter, Comics Arts Studies, and that indirectly led to the start of the Comics Arts Conference, which is the largest and longest running academic conference on comics that runs during the San Diego Comic-Con and WonderCon. And besides that, uh, I turned my dissertation into a book, Superhero, The Secret Origin of a Genre. I review articles for Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics and also the journal Studies and Comics. I review books for Mississippi, University of Mississippi Press and a couple other presses. And I teach comics at Washington University in St. Louis. Okay, Pete. Well, I, I guess that says you, you belong here. You know, what more can I say? And back to 1984, the year of TMNT, this was a year of total change and transformation for the industry, don't you think, Alex? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say a big year of transformation, but I would definitely say that there are signs of change for sure that are worth talking about. It just depends on how you look at it. If you want to look at that era of time as still an extension of the Bronze Age, but in the middle of change or part of the Iron Age. And now it's really starting to really iron out at this point. Either way, I would say it's valid, but there was some changes. There was new life into the industry as well as the end of an era. We can talk about the new life section. So Pete, we have the emergence of two toy lines and two major efforts by DC and Marvel to cash in on as much as they can with superpowers and secret wars in 84. What do you know about that? Uh, of course, there had always been toys, you know, going back to Superman's crypto ray gun in the, in the late 30s. But what changed here was a much greater emphasis on kind of an integration, in many ways failed integration, because they couldn't quite get things worked out with the different toy companies you got amethyst you know rom the space knight other characters like that coming in but the difference is that they occurred within the miniseries because that's one of the shifts that takes place 
between the Bronze Age of the 1970s and what I call the Iron Age of the 1980s is that the miniseries came in, so you had these limited, controlled comic series that somebody could own, could buy all of them. Later, of course, they would get collected, but this was before, 1984 is before you see the collections. And so it's a different shift because it's it's kind of more integrated and controlled and a much kind of larger marketing effort that I think, you know, ultimately culminated in the integration of the comics companies into, you know, Warner Brothers and Disney. There is a kind of turning point there with Secret Wars and with superpowers. And Alex, what do you think of this? I, I know you have some definite thoughts. Well, I think that it's the sequence of events that interests me because DC contracted Jack Kirby to plot out their Superpowers five-issue miniseries with his Fourth World characters, which was canceled about 12 years earlier and didn't fare very well at the time, but they were really interesting, innovative characters that they wanted to set up as characters within this DC storyline. So DC awarded Kenner the contract of producing these toys, and Kenner had just made it big off of Star Wars. Kirby worked with Kenner to actually redesign some of his fourth world characters. And oddly enough, he actually made more money off this through the help of Paul Levitz than anything he did in co-creating the Marvel Pantheon in the 60s with Stan Lee. The uh, interesting point is that the Super Friends show even transformed as a result of this a year later with the Superpowers team Galactic Guardians. So this had some ramifications on the industry right before the final season of the Super Friends show a year later, but also it was a way for DC and a toy line to cross-promote each other and cash in. And it's an interesting corporate maneuver. Marvel then wants to do something similar. And so Mattel, which did well with He-Man, but passed on Star Wars, wanted to make some money as well. And so Mattel licensed Marvel to do a comic with Marvel characters as a toy line. And it was originally going to be called Cosmic Champions, But Mattel, you know, they did this with He-Man, is they found that there are certain phrases that did well with kids, and they said, do something with the word secret and do something with the word wars. So then Jim Shooter makes a 12-issue limited series that he wrote, and Mike Zeck drew a lot of those issues. And he also then directed other writers and artists to then do crossover storylines with other comics with post-Secret War stories like X-Men 180, Spider-Man 251, And with the toy line, then it becomes this big cross-promoted item. And again, big cashing in happening. So this is happening at DC and at Marvel. I feel like there's a turning point, like what uh, Pete was saying, how things are getting more corporate and cross-promoted with big money being made. And that, I think, does change the industry to some extent, leading into the rise and fall of the early 90s. Issue 8, which you know premiered Spider-Man's black costume symbiote and one of the main stars in the recently successful sony venom movie bill you also made a point about cyborg being introduced into the super friends tell me more about that yeah basically cyborg was brought in for an ethnic equality for lack of a better term for it in the uh, mid 80s and kenner wanted to integrate a more ethnically diverse order into their toys and this was a great intro to that The funny thing is, is that it went further than they expected, and they wound up not being able to continue the toy line further than they wanted, and they were bringing out characters like Plastic Man, like 
all sorts of the DC characters that had long been forgotten. And they made so much money off of this. It, it, it was ridiculous. I would make a note also that Plastic Man had a cartoon a few years before Superpowers that did pretty okay. It went on for, what, two, three years or so. And then he did guest star. I remember you told me this once, that he did actually guest star in um, one of the Super Friends episodes before that. Even though he was a quality comics character, um, kind of brought into DC later, he did have some recognition with kids from the cartoons at the time. Of course, we had Baby Plaz and other crazy characters like, I'm trying to remember the character that was a dog that was so ugly that he scared everybody to death and he had a doghouse on his face. <laughs> Come on, Alex. You can help me out here, can't you? The dog face boy, actually. Yeah, dog face boy. Yeah, guys. Come on. Now we're talking about circus freaks, the dog face boy, and then the bearded lady and all that stuff, right? I don't think they made it into the Superpowers toy line, though. No, they did not. Okay. <laughs> Bill, look, you're a 70s comic kid. So as a 70s comic kid, you know, you probably liked Mego toys and all that stuff. Yes, I loved it. Yeah, you loved Mego toys. How did you feel about the Superpowers toy line and the Secret Wars toy line when they came out in 1984? Did you feel like it wasn't your characters or did you get into it a bit? Hey, I loved them, but the Mego stuff was really where I was at because I'm old school. What can I say? Because... I mean, honestly, the Secret Wars line was much smaller, like the new G.I. Joe line, which most of us old school guys just couldn't, I don't know, we couldn't handle. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, you're right. They were smaller than the Mego toys. Yeah, that's true. You're not as cool. Right, okay. That's funny. Migos had their own costumes. Right, right. I see what you mean. I mean, there's so much to love about the Mego years. I'm just saying. Pete? You're old enough to remember the Mego years. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, I do remember them, but I never owned any of those toys. So I didn't have a direct connection to them. I remember just seeing them in the comic books. That was just after I graduated from high school. And so I was freshman in college that year. So I really wasn't thinking about those toys. So now we have, well... What I would like to say is a surprising underdog, which became an overdog in many ways in the comics industry, and that's Eclipse's Zot by Scott McCloud. And this was the color version. The uh, black and white version a few years later got actually a lot more critical acclaim. But what do you guys think about this? Well, Zot's by Scott McCloud. It was inspired by Tezuka's manga comic Astro Boy, which started in the 1950s. Bill, you know a lot about Astro Boy, don't you? Yes, I do, actually. And it was started in the 50s. And he was actually in Japan. He was known as Ambassador Adam. And Zot was indeed a total uh, homage and extenuation of what uh, Tezuka had started almost at the end of, well, actually at the end of Tezuka's lifespan. Pete, I'm sure you know a lot about Zot. What do you have to tell us? Yeah, well, I did uh, read Zot right from the beginning and enjoyed it. And that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, 1984, especially starting with Zot, is really more in the Iron Age because the 80s were much more that era of the alternative comics, right? Like, it it was the ground-level comics, Pacific and First and 
Eclipse, all those companies had been around for a little bit. And now they were starting to spread out and really kind of publish stuff that was interesting. I mean, this is where Scott McCloud came to everybody's attention. You know, he'd been around a little bit before, but he hadn't struck out. But he struck out on his own, you know, with this book. And that creator-owned comics, that's really much more of a symbol of what happened in the 80s and the Iron Age than than the Bronze Age. So 1984 doesn't strike me as much of a bridge year because of things like Zot. It really is more firmly into what was going to come than what came before. Right, absolutely. And that's the thing with this kind of new life within that year is it's definitely more signs of the future. Did you guys like the Zot comic when you read it? I guess the first one before the second series. Oh, yeah. I like both versions. And something also that was going on during this period was the first incarnation of Mr. X by Gilbert and his brother Hernandez, Mario Hernandez, not Mario. Oh, yeah. Love and Rockets? Yes. They brought out Mr. X, and it was all started by Dean Motter, but this was all going on at the same time. And this was part of the new incarnation of comics, I would like to say. Art Bark Vanaheim was scoring big with Cerebus, of course, and soon after 84, they did Puma Blues and a few other series. But this was a turning point for comics, I think, and especially with Dot. I think it made things different. It made them fun again, and it made people realize why they like comics, because of the great storytelling. In it, the main star was a female, Jenny, who befriended Zot, the character. And in the first series, she goes into his world of tomorrow, and it's very manga-influenced, some American comic book art storytelling within this manga-inspired landscape. I like the color comics quite a bit. I like the black and white series after as well, but I like how the color comics look and feel. It feels like a Mike Allred story before Mike Allred. Right, I agree. He did get the Jack Kirby Award for storytelling. Scott McCloud did, I mean pushed comics as a medium of storytelling rather than it just being a genre of just superhero comics. Yeah, especially because he started it out and Zot was, you know, this fun, very colorful, more simple book, very science fiction. And then, you know, when he brought it back as the black and white, he was able to develop into a much more realistic, mimetic story really about jenny rather than about exactly in a lot of ways tell a story that he wanted to tell about human beings and that came out of the fact that he owned it that he didn't have to worry about connection with other comics it didn't fit into a universe it was a thing by itself you know zot was in many ways just a, a kind of real indicator of what comics could be i remember reading it at the time and thinking that like this was something different it wasn't like marvel or dc or you know gold key or charlton or anything else it represented something that hit me perfectly as i got older and as i became an adult there were more and more comics that i could relate to in a number of different ways and zot is an example of that pete You're still not an adult. I'm sorry. But Alex, when did you get turned on to Zot? 
I mean, as you know, I was six when it came out. So I was watching Plastic Man cartoon reruns still. But later, I read it three years ago, the color and the black and white. I liked it. I read it after I already read Mike Allred's stuff. I'm a big Mike Allred fan. It didn't hit me so hard because a lot of comics had already done stuff timeline-wise after Zot, but I read those first. I actually read Astro Boy after I read Zot, so I had kind of a different... I was kind of reading backwards in time. I enjoyed it for seeing where that type of storytelling starts to come up in the early 80s. So I looked at it in more of a studious manner rather than experiencing it when it first came out. And then, of course, we have the Heroes on the Half Shell, Turtle Power. I'm talking about the Danger Mutant Turtles, which are refutably from a number of sources from the era, including Jack Kirby, including Ronan by Frank Miller, and including so much more. Guys, what do you have to say about TMNT? Alex, start. Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Uh, published Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, inspired, like you said, elements from Cerebus, Miller's Daredevil, Miller's Ronin, Jack Kirby, creature-type characters. It was published from their Mirage Studios. It was a 40-page black-and-white issue. Not a lot of people know this, but Kevin Eastman actually used all his money to fund the issue and borrowed money as well, and he ordered 3,000 copies. And to build up hype for their independent comics endeavor they issued a press release in the comics journal and took it to distributors immediately who just bought them outright and the issues sold out uh, right away and that's when they knew they had something interesting in their hands pete what did you think about teenage mutant girls when it came out you're you're a teenager yeah well i actually bought uh teenage mutant ninja turtles number one not the first printing maybe the second printing third printing something like that right off the stands because I had read Miller's Daredevil and I'd read Ronan and I at the time was buying everything kind of so new stuff would come in and I'd buy it and again it was this weird thing it was interesting that's what I liked about the comics of that era is you kind of never knew what you were going to get and it, it had that Kirby vibe of the kind of almost uh, the newsboy legion you know, this small group, obviously the kind of Fantastic Four, also kind of the X-Men. You know, it touched on a lot of things, but it was it was different. And while it was sort of a joke, right, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it also kind of had its own integral, you know, different storytelling. That's why it stuck. And, you know, it, it, the interesting thing, of course, is that it inspired all these ripoffs. There was the adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters and the preteen dirty gene kung fu kangaroos. And, you know, there's just so many of those things. Uh, there were so many comics that came off of TMNT. And like Pete mentioned, the uh, adolescent hamsters, the, how they didn't get their own show, I have no idea, Pete. The thing about it is Eastman and Laird's success sort of showed that people could come out of nowhere, bang together a comic book, and if it worked, it could really lead to something. And that, that led to a lot of comics that were just thrown out there, thrown together. You know, somebody would make, they'd print up 3,000 copies, 
take them to, you know, Capital and to Diamond, distribute them and list them. And that led to just a lot of different weird stuff coming out in the 80s. That's why I think that the 1984, this stuff happening is really like firmly tied into the rest of the 80s. It's not really the end of something. It's almost sort of the middle of something. Then mid 80s, there you go. Well, and not only that, but you have to remember He-Man and G.I. Joe were huge right now. And this is another reason why you had this insurgence of DC and Marvel wanting to play nice with the action figure industry. Don't you think, Alex? Well, yeah. I mean, they were already making money. Well, the toy business was big. I mean, He-Man in 1982 showed that you can put together a character in a comic in a cartoon and cross promote and make big bucks. So it was a game changer in that sense. And so for Marvel and DC to catch up to that by 1984, yeah, that's actually kind of a theme of like 82 to 87. But TMNT, it was only a matter of time for them to have their own cartoon a few years later, as well as their own action figures. And it all started out with those characters in 84. Have you guys heard of its relation to Frank Miller's Daredevil? When Matt Murdock, as a kid, that truck yeah. that that radioactive goo hits his eyes and makes him right. blind with extra powers. Yes, I but am. But then there was another canister that fell off the truck right. and went into the sewer. Yep. And then it lands on the four turtles and splinter and then makes them all mutate into large things, implying that they were actually within a coexisting extension of the Daredevil story. And the funny thing is, as you mentioned... As He-Man and that whole era wound down in 87, guess what happened in 88? The TV series Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So as one thing wound down, it spun back up into something completely different, just like the Turtles had yes. within the comic realm. It now translated into animation, which I think is fantastic. Well, 1987 is when the cartoon starts, I think. But I would say that you're right. As one thing starts to kind of wind down, other things start up. But I would definitely say that, I don't know, for me personally, I'm nine years old, saw the cartoon before I read the comic. And I really liked the cartoon, but what I was really fascinated by when I first read the comic was how much more intense it was and almost violent and and more interesting and more rugged. And each of the turtles, I didn't find their identities to be as discerning. I mean, it's not like you had Leonardo with his blue thing and having a particular personality and Michelangelo, which is orange, you know, mask or whatever. But it seemed like they started to really define that in the comics by the time the cartoon came along. Did you read the comic before you saw the cartoon, Bill? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I knew, I knew the guys like when they started out because I had my own comics coming out at the same time. Although my stuff didn't hit quite like theirs did. And I was also more in the mini-comics realm at that point because I was still in college and couldn't afford to publish the big stuff. I have to tell you, Eastman and Laird were both some of the nicest guys. Now, Laird was uh, actually in his early 30s. So he was much older than most of us in the industry. And Kevin and I were about a year, he was about a year older than me. And Kevin is actually the guy in my eyes that propelled the entire thing, had the idea, and got Laird involved. 
And I'm sure Laird's super happy about that because those guys have both made hundreds of millions of dollars thanks to their attorney. Well, that's interesting. So you feel that although the byline says by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, you would really push Kevin Eastman as the primary generator of this. Oh, absolutely. And I think I think Laird would agree with me, honestly, because he silently got out of the industry and didn't do anything more while Kevin continued and bought out heavy metal and did a second heavy metal movie and really took it to the extremes as far as he could for the comic industry. I think he did wonders for us in the independent realm. And Pete, what's your impression of Kevin Eastman versus Peter Laird's contribution to Ninja Turtles? Would you say that it was more of a Kevin Eastman project? I would agree with Bill. I think Bill's analysis is correct because you did see them split off and, and Eastman stayed in and did stuff like with heavy metal and so forth. From what I understand, Laird gave his okay to it, but it, it was more Kevin. But I'm saying this without Googling it, so... But I think that's right, because I think I saw Kevin Eastman on an episode of Comic Book Man, and they were really talking more about him and how he drew the first turtle and how he was selling the first turtle sketch that he made. So I think that is kind of probably right, that it was more a Kevin Eastman project and then Peter Laird got involved after. But again, that's just from what I've seen. I mean, the truth, you know, who really knows? But yeah, I mean, it seems like that's probably right. So... Pete, what do you think, as a comicologist, the only comicologist amongst us, as far as we know, what would you say the prominence or the point that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have in comic history, where would you place that from a, from 1 to 10? Well, I don't know I'd rate it like that, but the main thing, I think, is that it showed at the time that the distribution network existed, right? And if you could get in with something that people liked, it didn't take that much money. It just, you know, you could, people could do it. A couple of guys could come along and they could make something. This is the same thing like with Zot. Again, it was that these things could be driven by individuals owning their own material, coming up with their own ideas, Rooted in genre, this is the whole ground level thing, right? It, it took the underground business model of ownership and kind of small level distribution and brought in the genre stuff from the above ground. It was that perfect blend that kind of all came together because you also had people like, who were like my age. I started reading comics in 1974. And I was, you know, moving to adult. And if it had been 10 years earlier, you know, would I have stuck with them? I don't know. Maybe, probably. But it was really easy for me to stick with them and transition because of stuff that was owned by and produced by individuals with their own vision. And because they owned it, right, you got the business and the creative end coming together in stuff like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They could grow into other things. And it really led the way in terms of adaptation to other media, because I think that they were really, you know, the first sort of big ones on that shift, which we see now all, all over the place. Right. And they were able to make that work 
in a way that then I think a lot of other people got into it with the idea maybe that they would that they would sell out quickly. But that kind of provided a model that became important later on, I think. I'm sorry, Pete, but I'm going to have to disagree with you there for a number of things because Eclipse was a reputed company and they were pumping out tens of thousands of comics at the time. So it's not exactly like they were independent like the rest. They were almost on the par of Marvel and DC. And what do you have to say to that, sir? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out under their own you know, label to begin with. So that's what I'm that's saying. Right. Yeah. As opposed to a clip. I would say something to that, Bill, though, is... Please. Are there any comics from Eclipse that you're mentioning? Just as the example that you're mentioning. Any of those characters that came out that have as much permanence and long-lasting recognition across a few generations like the way Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did? No, but that's almost a false imperative because, I mean, they transcend... Most all brands in the time. I was going to say DNA agents, but they they had nothing that TMNT had. That's what I mean. It's like there was something different about TMNT, though. Yeah, they were that really rare element in the rough that you only see once in a lifetime. They really don't have a a comparative element. I mean, I mean, there's something interesting about them because. I can show the Ninja Turtles to my three-year-old son, and he's glued to the screen. He's like, whoa, what are those? Right. And then if I show him a comic, he'll be like, oh, yeah, that's that cartoon, and it's those four guys. And I remember I watched them argue the other day. Now, if I show him an Eclipse comic, obviously, he's going to just not really look at it, right? And so it's just kind of an interesting thing where there is something unique. I would say TMNT even kind of outdid Cerberus as far as... oh. They totally did. Even though Cerberus kind of made them possible, but still. But yeah. you have to remember, for the first three years, they didn't even have colors. Right. In any way, shape, or form. The colors came almost right before... Well, Right before the cartoon? Right before the cartoon. Right. Yeah. So you didn't have those vibrant four-color elements right, right, to right. place to it. This is another one of those Harley Quinn moments where you have an animated character or an animated aspect of a character that becomes greater than the character itself and its comic book origins. Wouldn't you agree, Pete? Well, Harley Quinn didn't come out of the comics, but yeah. No, no, that's what I'm saying. She came out of the animated. What I'm saying is, is that the animated forebear or afterbear, as it were, of these characters wind up being the canon as opposed to the comic book version. Yeah, and I I think it's really common when stuff gets adapted. I was just looking, um, you know, in terms of Eclipse, though, Miracle Man came out of it, but The Rocketeer, right, by Dave Stevens. And and again, that was the thing that, and it bounced around at different, after Eclipse died, you know, The Rocketeer continued on, it continues on to this day. That was one of the interesting things that I found that happened during the 80s like that, where a comic book would start with one publisher, one small publisher, and then jump to another. I can't think of who was publishing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles all that time if it kind of bounced around a little bit. But Well, Eastman and Laird had their own publishing yeah. realm. And then the, the first time they actually hit the uh, four-color circuit was with Archie Comics. That's right. 
that and, you know, with, with Zot and so forth, that this was really the first time that there was this kind of widespread ownership and kind of broader popularity. Of course, Cerberus, you know, Dave Sim did that and he owned it all the way through, but, you know, he never adapted it to anything else. Whereas the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, again, provided a model that we see, you know, operating today of people breaking in one medium and then it's spreading out to others. So I'm with you on that. So, Pete, you mentioned The Rocketeer. Well, The Rocketeer started at Pacific Comics, and, well, sadly, in 1984, Pacific Comics was, well, almost at their last gasp, pun intended, comic reference, comic reference. So, I have to say, the other things that were going on at this time were, well, they were sad, they were changing, they were evolving, but we also had the deaths of several members of the comic community that people loved and people adored. There's a lot of change around this time. Pacific Comics was San Diego-based, and it had some big successes, like The Rocketeer with uh, Dave Stevens. It also had some failures, like Neil Adams' Skate Man. Did you guys ever read Skate Man? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Skate Man was great. Yeah, there's this funny panel where it shows Skate Man or someone in there saying, hey, what you talking about, pig meat? I think it's a real funny panel. So they had their, you know, highs and lows, but actually retail stores abandoned Pacific as a distributor because they owed Pacific Comics a lot of money. And the industry, just all these stores, started not paying Pacific Comics back. They had $750,000 worth of debt where they gave all these stores product, but no one paid them. They started ordering through other distributors instead and not paying them back just to get more product faster and leaving Pacific out on a dime. And it actually became this really sad way to end. So it was their distribution bills that killed Pacific Comics in 1984. Their publishing sales was fine. Oddly enough, although their comics sold well, but they lost money through the distribution end, guess who bought them out? I'm not going to guess. How about you, Pete? I don't know. I mean, I know that, uh, like we said, uh, Rocketeer went over to Eclipse. Bud Plant bought them out. He actually bought out their distribution, and he expanded his own West Coast distribution even more after purchasing Pacific Comics, which had $750,000 worth of debt. So that was kind of interesting. Now, here's another thing arises from the death of Pacific Comics. Then there starts a new independent comic line based on their death, okay, in this year. And Neil Adams was making some of his comics through Pacific Comics, like Skate Man and some other things. Well, when Pacific Comics went defunct, he then decided, I'm just going to publish my own damn comics. And he started Continuity Comics in 1984, right after Pacific Comics went down. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And that's the point that I was making earlier about the way that individual books could shift from one publisher to another. You know, in the the 70s, things were so much more publisher-driven, right? Yeah, totally. Because you had... Marvel and DC and Charlton and and so forth. And here's what it is. I had trouble figuring out how to store my comics because I had always stored them by company. Then when you had one title leap from company to company to company, I had to come up with a completely different storage system to track because did I move things around and keep them by title or did I keep them by company? And it was, it was, it was darn confusing. 
That's interesting. You're right, because you'd have to then split a run of comics by publisher. So then one through four is in one pile, and then five through ten is somewhere else. That's a funny dilemma, actually. Yeah. And I, I ultimately went with the title of the books, but it felt weird to do that because before then, my boxes were always publisher boxes. Right. That's interesting. So now you have dogs and cats interbreeding yep. and creating disgusting pounds of flesh. Dogs and cats living together. Oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> that, that, that's also a 1984 reference because Ghostbusters... <laughs> <laughs> in 1984. Are you the Peter Venkman of the group, Bill? Alex, be honest. Have I not said, in the presence of Jimbo, I am the Peter Venkman of this group? Have I not? I have said that. I feel like it's something you would say. Just believe me on this one, because I have said that. And I glorify in my Venkmanness. I would like to claim the Ernie Hudson role. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Ernie Hudson is the common sense guy. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think, yeah, I, I, I think I'd give that to you, actually. That's Alan. funny, the common sense guy. But uh, to tie that into 1984, folks, Ernie Hudson was the voice of Cyborg. Oh, yeah. From the Superpowers Galactic Guardians cartoon that from 1985, that was inspired by the 1984 Superpowers comic. So something that Pete was touching on was the idea of these creator-owned comics moving their comics around from one publisher to the next. So this idea of creators getting a taste of their own pie became a real 80s kind of theme. And that actually goes along with the incentive system that DC and Marvel started catching on, where people who were writing and drawing comics, if their books exceeded a certain amount, they could actually get a percentage, but it was way more money than any of them ever expected to make in comics at the time. And going along with that interesting theme, in 1984, a lot of the creators from the 60s, you know, Dick Ayers, John Bushima, Don Heck, Steve Ditko, Marvel released their original art back to these 60s comic artists as long as they signed off a one-page release on the character's copyright, just so those creators will then put into writing that they actually don't own the copyright to those characters. So there was definitely a theme of publishers and creators, and there was a synergy, a symbiosis, but also a little bit of an adversarial feeling toward the people from the prior generation that didn't get that same treatment. And actually, the one above all, Jack Kirby, was not sent the same one-page uh, release. He was sent a four-page release that actually didn't allow him to sell his original art like the other guys were able to. They tried to make him sign a four-page thing that relinquishes all creator rights and that he doesn't own the original art even, that he only has custody and that he can't actually legally sell him. And Kirby fought this and eventually got a relatively decent chunk of his original art back some years later. There was a big dilemma in 1984 about creators in this. What do you guys think about those release forms those guys had to sign? I think the seven-figure sum that Kirby's family got from Disney recently pretty much acclimates all of that. But until that point, I think it was horrible. I remember uh, at the time reading in, in like the comics journal and so forth that creators really didn't want to make up new characters. You know, that's they wanted to take their own new characters 
and go off to the to the alternatives and the independents because they would own them. And so there really wasn't a lot of, if you look at in the late 70s and into the early 80s, there were not very many new characters created at the majors because they wanted to own them. You know, Ronan was an example of that. Miller got a big chunk of money to come over. And then, of course, with Batman Dark Knight Return, he got another big chunk of money. And so it, it started to develop our system, but that was because of you know, Eclipse and Pacific and other other publishers like that providing a venue for people to own their own stuff. It fed back in, and it's interesting the way, you know, like Marvel tried to control all of that with those releases. Yeah, and I think that Jeanette Kahn had a lot to do with Miller coming over to DC and offering a creator payment for him. Oh, yeah. I think that she was a bit of a driving force. I also think Paul Levitz as well. Those two, they were kind of like the right people to have at DC at the time. And that, I think, got Marvel moving on the similar bandwagon. Well, not only that, but I also think that uh, Neil Adams always had a mouth to uh, Jeanette Kahn's ear in a lot of ways. And he was a guy who totally pushed for creator rights back before it was cool. And I think intrinsically... It went from him to her to making a difference. Yeah, in 1975, he helped Siegel and Schuster get their creator byline back on Superman and some pensions. So right. He was a force of nature when it came to creator rights. That's true. Pete, what do you think? I don't know. There was just a lot of ferment in that period of creators trying to keep hold of stuff. And it did slowly transforming relationships. Denny O'Neill told me, that after Batman Begins, he got a check from Warner Brothers for Rachel Ghoul. Warner Brothers was not obligated to write him a check, but they did. Yeah, Jim Starlin said that he got a check for the Batman vs. Superman movie for the Russian bad guy, the KG Beast in comics that he created. Yeah. And he got a check and was like, whoa, I just got a check for this character that I... And he said it was more money than he got from a Marvel movie at the time that he got that check. DC just has a higher rate of helping its creators out a little more, it seems. Yeah. Another thing that happened in 1984, probably a minor event, but I find it interesting because I love the comics so much, is the British comic Marvel Man. It was started in 1954 as a Captain Marvel ripoff. Quality communications... Oh, no, no, no. Not as a ripoff. Because of the Fawcett-DC legal agreement, they weren't allowed to continue the character of Captain Marvel. So they were forced into creating a whole new character, which became Marvel Man. No, oh, I gotcha. Okay. Kid know. Marvel Kid Man. Mar Kid Marvel Man. Right. And that's interesting. Yeah, because Marvel Man starts in 1954, shortly after Captain Marvel was discontinued, or Fawcett discontinued those comics with DC's cease and desist of using the character. So that's interesting that Marvel Man would start. So yeah, maybe, yeah, I could see it being generated under that circumstance. That comic ran from 1954 to 1963. Quality Communications ends up getting the copyright for Marvel Man, and they hire Alan Moore to write a series. And that went from 1982 to 1984 in Warrior Magazine. And in 1984, that comic had to seize because Marvel threatened litigation because of the character having the name Marvel in it. And Warrior Magazine ended up folding anyway under poor sales. But I love that Marvel Man run. Eclipse, 
then takes on the Marvel Man character and starts it off as the Miracle Man just to avoid the Marvel mishap. But yeah, tell me what you thought about it. I mean, I read it when it came out as Miracle Man. That was a really interesting book because it, it of course, starts out with the original. And, you know, then it, it goes in, uh, you know, closes on in on his eye. And it completely transforms into such an 80s story, you know, where essentially Billy Batson's walking around going, shh, 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 and he can't quite get it. And showing kind of the dark underside of of the superheroes. And I love the scene where Mickey Moran's in the uh, elevator and you know he thinks he's all everything's fine and he can't be hurt. And then uh, they put the baby in the elevator with him and he can't say his word. Because he'll, you know, kill the baby. And the idea that Moore would come up with, you know, kind of good science fiction explanations for these, all this, you know, junk, essentially. That was, there was a lot of that going on in the 80s. And it, I think a lot of it comes out of that. But I mean, it goes back to Frank Miller, too, because one, one of the things that I think happens that's interesting, I would love to see people get recreator credits. So with Daredevil, for example, on Netflix, Frank Miller should get a recreator credit for Daredevil. And that happens, you know, with a range of characters. I mean, Grell recreated Green Arrow. That's an interesting thing. And and that's true of Marvel Man slash Miracle Man as well, is that Alan Moore and Alan Moore did the same thing with Swamp Thing. They should get recreator credits. Yeah, I agree. Because there's something about making the character. Yeah. And there's another thing of making the character cool. That's a whole other thing. I mean, Daredevil wouldn't be on netflix if it weren't for frank miller right so well he also wouldn't be there if not for wally wood bill everett and stan lee well yeah but stan and bill get the credit already but i think wally wood and i think frank miller should get some credit because honestly daredevil season two and three it's like all frank miller really yeah no you're right you're right and then the red costume yeah that's what i think that miracle man shows you have these existing characters and you know in some ways they're just kind of junky crap you know daredevil wasn't that great of a character i read daredevil all the way through the 70s and he just wasn't he was just eh, you know he wasn't really he wasn't really marvel's batman he kind of functioned that way there's that bizarre story where matt murdoch pretends to be his own swinging brother oh gosh yeah that was mike murdoch i think later 60s that was gene colin and stanley doing that stuff yeah yeah but i mean it really wasn't, it was, you know, good in its own way, but what Miller did with the character, again, was to recreate him in a way that, same thing with Bullseye. True. And that's what happened, too, with the Miracle Man, although Neil Gaiman obviously came in and did a kind of another version of it, so. No, I read them, they were good. Yeah, I never read that stuff. Were they? Yeah, I love the uh, Alan Moore stuff. I mean, Kid Marvel Man or Kid Miracle Man, what he did, was that to London? How he like raped and decapitated everybody? I mean, wow. Look like the average knight in Charlie Sheen's house. How would you know? I'm sorry. How would you know what that looks like, Alec? I don't want to ask. I don't want and, <laughs> and another thing that the Miracle Man series did, it was the first time that there was a realistic birth of a human being All right. in a comic book. It was so realistic, it was, like, abhorrent. That's the word of this episode, kids. Abhorrent. Yeah. They had vagina and everything in that. I'm trying so hard. I really want to be, like, a symbol of something in this show. I'm not sure what. 
But Pete, what do you think of that? Uh, do you think that uh, do you think Miracle Man went too far, or do you think it know. didn't I, go far enough? I think it was just fine. I remember Cat Ironwood uh, talking about that in the Eclipse Comics and how they had to push for it. The idea that can't show a birth, like that's weird that you can't show a thing that's just natural and common and just where we all came from but you know you can show all kinds of other strange things and nobody cares well one of the advantages of the direct market was they didn't have to publish stuff with a comics code authority symbol on it because that was more required for the newsstand distribution but for the direct market they didn't have to have that at all they just went right to the comic store and so because that they could put a panel like that and not worry about making sales you know that was actually one of the nice things about the direct market it liberated a lot of comics from the comics code you could put a head squirting out of a pregnant woman's vagina, and you could actually publish it and, and still sell a bunch of copies. And not only that, you could have Black Kiss, which introduced uh, kids to, you know, strap-ons. But I digress, and we're going to continue through this episode, because unfortunately, 1984 also brought <sighs> some sad, sad, well, dates. And that would be the death of Saul Brodsky, who arguably helped Stanley create uh, Marvel Comics. Bill Suling, who had everything to do with immersions of comic stores and comic cons. And then you had Don Newton, who was the new guy, in a sense, and died way too young. An artist who died being Captain Marvel's artist. So... We have great segues this time, folks. Right. Saul Brodsky, he was kind of one of those silent titans of comic books. His work goes back to the Golden Age. He did some Blue Beetle covers, even as far back as 1942. He penciled them, I mean. He was Stan's right-hand production man to put the 60s Marvel comics together. He could package it, and he could pencil, ink, he could letter, he could edit, he could produce it, make the photostats that you need to do, he could then get it to the printer. So anything that was missing, because someone kind of didn't have time to do something, he could fill in the blank and then get it to the production finish line. So that was really important to keep Stan and Marvel functioning at the time. And he left around 1970 for Skywald Magazines, or Skywald Comics, which he co-created. Sky, of the name Skywald, was from his last three letters of his name, Brodsky. And he came back in the mid-70s for Marvel as Vice President of Operations, expanding Marvel into the U.K., and other non-comics products. And he worked on that until 1984, the year we're talking about, at the age of 61. So his death, I feel, signifies the past is over and the new stuff that's coming in, it's just a sign that the times were definitely changing. He's, I think, an interesting figure. I, I didn't really know that much about him, but I knew his name because his name was always appearing in Marvel Comics, right? And if you think about the way that Marvel really started the crediting system. He's an example of that. He didn't stand out. You know, you didn't know him from any one thing, but you knew his name because he was, he kept showing up in all different kinds of comics all across Marvel. And that was that old idea of the kind of the Marvel bullpen and the Marvel as a company and Mary, you know, the Mary Marvel Marching Society. That image that Stanley put forward of, you know, the happy company and the cool place to be and all of that stuff. 
and Saul Brodsky was there as a background player, but I knew his name. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you try to define him, it's actually kind of hard. But when it came to making the show go on and packaging it and making it happen, he was the guy that you could always rely on. Well, and sadly, two years later, his son took his legacy and created a company called Salson because he was Saul's son. Arguably, or not so arguably, created about 20 of the absolute worst comic books of all time. I mean, you had Daffy versus Gaddafi, or Daffy Gaddafi. I can't even remember. It was so horrible. You had all these... It was almost like some kid, eight-year-old, drew all these drawings, and Saul's son took them and tried to... They had Reagan's Readers. Oh, I remember that. The ultimate patriotic superheroes book. That's what they would put on the front. They had the sultry teenage super foxes. Okay. I do not remember that one. (laughs) They actually did license some TMNT stuff. They did the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles teach karate. They had a lot of sex stuff, too. How to draw adult anime. How to draw erotic art. How to draw fetish art. How to draw sexy career women. That's Bill's favorite one. And then Pete likes this one, I'm sure. How to draw sexy witches, wenches, and vampires. <laughs> it's kind of a funky little comic company, but I will say that they did publish Thunder, T-H-U-N-D-E-R. And I do find that admirable, actually. Oh, agents? Me- meaning Thunder Agents, but yes. Well, it is. It's a legendary Thunder Agents. It's interesting. It was almost like a dystopian Thunder Agents gone wrong in the future kind of a comic book. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting, I guess. The Brodsky family, they're just kind of an interesting crew, but I would say Saul Brodsky's contribution was probably more hefty. You know, again, the 80s, like Pete said, they're so random. I mean, you get so many different things. It's kind of fun in a way just to kind of see all the random stuff it, it generated. So then, of course, we go from Saul, Saul's son, and Saul Brodsky, the man, into a whole other aspect of comics, and that's the wonderful art of Don Newton. And Don died way too young compared to the other people we're talking about dying in this segment. But Don had just taken on the mantle as the uh, illustrator of Shazam, Captain Marvel, when he passed away. And he had started at Charlton Comics and then transitioned over to DC. And, well, I'll just say this. I loved Don's work, and as a kid or young adult, I was really sorry when he passed so quickly, and I almost thought it was like a Paul McCartney, you know, Paul is dead kind of moment, because I really couldn't believe that he was gone at such a young age. Guys, do you remember Don at all, Alex? I know Don more in retrospect, because when he died, I was five. So I didn't read him in real time, but I did look back. And something about Don is he started making art back for fanzines in 1968 for the Rocket Blast Comic Collector. And that's kind of a famous fanzine. And then he was doing that kind of work for about six years when he joined Charlton in 1974. And Over there, he made a name for himself doing comics like The Phantom. He then ended up going back and forth between the two big guys, Marvel and DC, in the later 1970s through the early 80s. And he was famous for his Aquaman and Batman, specifically. Interesting thing is that he 
penciled the first appearance of the Jason Todd Robin in 1983. It's actually unfortunate. After months of a sore throat, he died of a massive heart attack in 1984. So it was actually this really terrible ending to a guy that was just starting to get his feet on the ground. Did you ever read that Jason Todd first appearance in 1983? I think I did, actually. Yeah, yeah. he was like trying to steal one of the Batmobile's tires or something like that. I hated that. Yeah. I thought it was the worst, stupidest thing, but... Were you one of the guys that were like, you know, Dick Grayson was a lot better? I was, for sure. I, I thought, how can you try to usurp <sighs> the Dick the Ward mantle? I'm just saying. So, yeah, his death was tragic. Then another death, which I feel like is kind of a signifier of the changing times, Phil Suling died in 1984. You know, he started the New York Comic Art Convention in 1968. And Bill, you might like this, but he actually did a voiceover for a couple of the characters in Ralph Bakshi's Fritz the Cat. Did you know that? I'm not surprised, but I did not know that. Thank you, Alex. It's kind of interesting, right? Then he started Seagate Distributors in 1973, and that was kind of a big deal, especially as far as the identity of the Bronze Age goes, is because he starts off the direct market to retailers. And he was even arrested for selling an underground comic to a miner, and he denied it. He wrote an editorial in Warren Magazine. In 1978, his distribution was so strong, by 1978, he even set up sub-distributors, and he actually held a monopoly over direct distribution until the Urjax lawsuit in that year of 1978. And that caused him to break up his sub-distributors into smaller independent distributors, and that would then start off the race for who would dominate distribution. So then you have Pacific Comics, and they kind of fall apart. Then Bud Plant, he then buys him out, and he becomes a bigger distributor. And there is this big race for distribution, which then ends when Diamond took over everything. And Phil Suling died of liver disease in 1984, which makes him kind of the ultimate Bronze Age real comics industry man. And his decline of what he was doing in 1978 toward his death in 1984 is kind of a signifier that, yeah, it's basically it's a changing of the times. But this brings us to what we do every episode, and that is our 100 rant, rave, or whatever the hell you want to do. So I'm going to start off this week with Alex. Alex, what are your 100 seconds to rant or rave or anything? I'm enjoying the Teen Titans show on the DC Universe app. It's kind of a hardcore, grittier Teen Titans. I did not imagine I would see Robin cut a guy's penis off in an act of revenge. I'm glad I witnessed it at least once in my life. I don't know if I'll be seeing more of that. I don't know if anyone else will copy that. I doubt it. But yeah, it's actually kind of a fun, weird ride going through that DC Universe app because you have these kid-friendly cartoons right next to this very adult-themed Teen Titans show with prostitutes and castration and stuff and Satan worship. So it's kind of an interesting, weird little deal. But uh, I'm enjoying it. It's fun. And that brings me to Pete, our guest of the week, our wonderful nom de plume. Well, you're not a nom de plume because you have a nom and a plume. (laughs) Pete, what's your one thing to rave or rant about this week as, as far as comics? One of the things that I've been doing lately is reading comics on a tablet. So I have a, a 10.1-inch tablet. It's a Samsung. And I get comics, you know, through like the Marvel com, but also through Hoopla at the library. So I just read something this week. 
I can't remember what at the moment, but I read comics on the Hoopla app and get them from the library, and it's it's great. You know, I'm actually I have a, a, I'm going to read 100 Bullets next, I think, the whole series. I just read Moon Knight. That was it. The Warren Ellis Moon Knight. It was good. I love being able to get them that way and, and have it be the right size. I used to have to turn my computer on its side to read comics. I hated it. Now with a tablet and things like the Hoopla app, it's so much easier. I love it. Now, do you find, you know, for some reason, and I love it too, but I find like I fall asleep easier on the tablet than with a hard book because on the hard book, I have to turn the page. It keeps me awake. <laughs> yeah. Whereas with the tablet, I start like falling asleep. I don't know why. Well, I, I don't think that happens to me except when I read, you know, right before I'm going to bed and I will, I will doze off, but I think I would doze off with the comic book too. Also, I don't think it makes, I don't think it makes a difference for me, but I can see your point. Yeah, I gotcha. Well, what about you, Bill? What's your uh, rave rant of the week? I have to say hurrah for Sabrina the Teenage Witch because this is the best incarnation ever. Yes, I was a kid. Pete and I are close enough in age. We both remember the TV cartoon in the early 70s, Sabrina, which is very close to the Dan DiCarlo version in Archie Comics. But now... They've made a completely new version of Sabrina based on the most recent series where Sabrina is uh, actually about to uh, sign on the dotted line with Satan. But then, oh, wow, what happens? She was baptized Catholic. Sorry, devil. Uh, But uh, Sabrina's uh, not going to be one of yours. She's going to be one of... uh, someone else's and it's a great series and i tell everybody to hook up on netflix and binge it that's cool i think i'm on episode five yeah i like it so far i like this whole devil angle that they're going at it's kind of interesting i find some of the characters a little annoying but i like sabrina herself a lot and this witch school is kind of interesting and then that goat statue i guess there's a real devil goat statue that these satan people are suing netflix for stealing the copyright over their goat statue, Satan character. Isn't that funny? (laughs) Why does that not surprise me? I I don't know. I I mean, everyone's too happy these days. Why not over a goat statue, I ask you? Well, the funny thing is, is you have Etta Candy from Wonder Woman as one of Sabrina's aunts. And, I mean, you have a lot of cross-pollination in this series, which I love. So, folks, with our rants, raves, and what the hell else you want to call it, done for the week, we want to say good night to our partner in crime for this week, our special guest, Pete Coogan. I was happy to do it. Thanks, buddy. And Alex Fran, my normal cohort and comrade in crime. Thank you, buddy. Have a great week, man. Thanks, Bill. And... For me, Bill Field, your host in Horrendous Horror, because it was Halloween this week, I want to say have a great week, great two weeks until we come back, and aloha! 